Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. We are talking about something interesting today. We are continuing our Grace Canon series, which I trust by faith will be up. See, God is so good. He comes through. We are continuing the Grace Canon series. What in the world is that if you're new? Well, it's a bit of nerdery, to tell you the truth, because the collected works of the Bible, right, are called the canon, right? And then a canon is also a weapon of warfare. So I'm on staff, and I'm kind of a dork, and I said, why don't we call it grace canon instead of grace in the canon? We could have all the apostles and prophets, like cartoon versions, stuffed in this, like, circus canon. And I didn't get that. But this is kind of a compromise. So grace canon It is. I still think that that would be epic and we should do it again. But we're talking about grace in the Old Testament. Today we are talking about lessons from Gibeon. Was anyone forced to go to church eight days a week like I was as a kid? And maybe they've heard of Gibeon. Anybody heard of Gibeon or the Gibeonites? A handful of people? Excellent. That means that I get to unfold the tale for many of you for the first time, which is exciting for me. But before I can do that, We are going deep in the Old Testament, guys. I mean, we are going to the book of Joshua and not far into the book of Joshua. So in order to give kind of a a preface to what I'm going to be talking about, preface, 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 perhaps, I don't know. We need to say something even before I get to the intro. So we need to intro the intro by setting the scene of what I'm going to be talking about. Does that sound okay? Excellent. Here we go. The scene starts way back in Genesis chapter 15. We may have heard recently about a guy named Abraham. Abraham was an old man who couldn't have kids. God shows up and says, hey, I'm actually going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make a people just for me, and I'm going to start with you. And Abraham says, sounds great. I kind of can't have kids and stuff. And God says, well, I'm God, so it's it's covered. Just stick with me. We're going to get this done. But Abraham keeps asking for reassurance as would any of us, right? Because he waits about 25 years before he actually has a kid. And one of these times where he's needing a word from the Lord, he's needing a little bit of reassurance. He knows God gave him a promise, not just to make him a great nation, but also to give him the land that he happens to be sitting in. And yet there's nothing going on. It's just him and his wife, and they can't have kids. And God says, Abraham, I want you to take some animals, I want you to cut them in half, spread them apart, and and make a path of dead animals. Now, that sounds gross, right? But Abraham understood that what God is asking him to do is set the stage for a covenant to be made, an unbreakable promise, a very serious oath that God is going to swear with Abraham. Abraham thinks. So Abraham does that in Genesis chapter 15, and he's diligent to keep all the birds off of the animal carcasses and stuff, and God does what God does and waits a little longer than Abraham thinks he should, and Abraham falls asleep. And when Abraham wakes up, he sees God. And God is walking through the animals, and he's making the promise by himself. He's reciting the terms of the covenant that should be made by both of them. In theory, they should be holding hands, walking down the path, reciting the vows that they were each obligated to keep, but God is doing it by himself because this promise, he wants Abraham to know, my friend, you can sit back and watch me do what I do. And here is part of what God says. Know for certain 
that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Because where they are right now is actually the promised land. And he's saying, hey, some bad news. You're going to go away for 400 years, but they'll come back. Now, why do they have to go away and come back? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's Genesis 15. So God tells Abraham, I swear to you, not only will you have a kid, but they're going to be a great nation. A little bit of a delay is going to happen. For 400 years, they're going to go to a strange land and be mistreated, but they're going to come back. And now that delay is necessary, Abraham, because the people that are in the land that you're in right now are not bad enough to justify a just God displacing all of them and doing what I have in my mind that I'm going to do. It's going to take 400 years for their sinfulness, their wickedness, their nastiness to deserve that kind of displacement. So it's kind of a mixed promise, right? I'm going to do it, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Fast forward to Moses. We've all heard of Moses, most of us probably. Moses delivers the people from Egypt, where the Israelites were for about 400 years. Funny how God knows what's going to happen. And he brings them right up to the cusp of the promised land, and they're about to cross over, and they're about to do what God said he was going to do. And God tells Moses, Moses, you need to communicate to these people, this is in Leviticus chapter 18, that I don't want to see them acting like they used to act in Egypt, where they hung out for 400 years. I don't like that. And I don't want to catch them acting like the people in Canaan where they're going act. And here's how those people act. And if you open Leviticus 18 for like, man, like 20 verses, it's a long, long list, mostly of really disturbing sexual sins. God lists what he doesn't want his people to do. And then he says, why? Skip to the end of the chapter. And we read, do not defile yourselves in the land of Canaan. Excuse me. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Everybody say gross. Gross. God's good at that imagery. And proving God does not have a double standard, he tells the Israelites this. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. This is the scene. The stage is set for a one-time, non-repeatable event. God is going to use his people as an extension of his wrath and his justice and displace a people whose sinfulness is described as being full. And then God says, you know what? I promised this land to you, and I'm going to give it to you. And your job is to drive out all these nations, but don't get cocky, because if you start acting in these defiling ways hypothetically, a few hundred years from now, I am going to use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to do the same thing to you. And that's exactly what ends up happening. But let's take a step back. That's the intro to the intro. And that sets the stage for what's going to happen. They cross over the Jordan River. They totally wreck the city of Jericho. Everyone dies, and it's burned to the ground. They totally wreck the city of Ai. 
Everyone dies and the city is destroyed. And now they are going to encounter the mighty Gibbonites. It's funny because they're Gibbons. I'm sorry. Okay, Gibeonites. Gibeonites, not Gibbonites. But <laughs> the humor serves a purpose. If you don't know, you don't know, right? So I'm going to tell you, if you don't know and you don't have to feel embarrassed, everybody just get a knowing look on your face and go, hmm, and nod like this. Ite or ites just means descendant of. Hmm, ah, yes. That's why we have a ton of Israelites and Benjamites, and these are Gibeonites, right? So they're descendants of some patriarch named Gibeon. And, interestingly, you can be a multiple ite at the same time. So if you were a descendant of Benjamin... You were a Benjamite. But Benjamin himself was a descendant of a guy named Israel, so he's an Israelite. So you are an Israelite Benjamite. Right? Everybody's got it. Excellent. That's important because our Gibeonite friends in this story will also be referred to as Hivites. Don't be confused. Gibeonite is just a subset of Hivite. We've got tons of ites running around, so we kind of need to understand what is all over the ite. Ites. I need to just be done with that. I, all right, I do. Before I go forward with the rest of the sermon, I have to explain something. When, well, no, I'll do that after we read all of Joshua 9. I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to talk about Daryl. Who's Daryl? Foreshadowing. Here we go. This is the story of the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. We are going to read all of it. Hopefully I do not pass out. Here we go. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, that would be the destruction of Jericho and the destruction of Ai, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and all along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings, multiple kings, of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, that's a lot of kings, came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Interesting note. Did you know that Joshua is the same name as Jesus? It's just kind of translated differently. It's both the word Yeshua. That might be important later. It might indeed. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. That is a nice touch, these sneaky guys. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Yeshua, I'm sorry, Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? So they're, setting, they're, they're trying to trick them, right? They, they kind of are, they're sneaky, man. You just get the impression that these are slimy weasels, right? Like, let's just wear old clothes and that ah, will fool them. Yeah, we're going to fool them. But Joshua's getting serious now. He's like, hey, hold on. Seriously, level with me. Where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. That's 50% true. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon, and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders, and all those living in our country, said to us, Take provisions for your journey, go and meet with them, and say to them, 
We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. Make a treaty with us. We need peace. Please, we've heard about your God. We've heard about everything that you do. We are here to beg for a treaty of peace. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, eye roll. But now we see how, see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions, like, oh, yep, that's mold, sure is, but did not inquire of the Lord. Interesting. Then Joshua, somebody say Yeshua, Yeshua. made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. They came begging by any means necessary to get a treaty of peace from Yeshua, Joshua, and Joshua does it. Three days after, they made the treaty with the Gibeonites. Apparently, they come over the next hill. There's the Gibeonites. The Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. Who would have thought? So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. This is interesting because they didn't just pinky promise. They didn't just say, okay, fine, sign on the dotted line. We have an armistice, whatever. It's a treaty. They swore to them by the Lord, their God. That means that Yahweh's character and reputation are wrapped up in this promise. We don't just promise we won't attack you. We swear by Yahweh, our God, in accordance to his name and reputation and character, we promised that we are now at peace with you. And they got that through Yeshua, by the way. Have I mentioned that? Okay, yeah, here we go. The whole assembly gathered against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel. We cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Interesting. There is a message here that I desperately want to preach that I don't get to preach because we're in a series on grace. But there's a wonderful one that starts right here that maybe one other time I'll preach it. But right now we're going to get to our key verses that we're going to keep coming back to. Joshua 9, 24, and 25. Joshua says, why did you deceive us? And they're very honest this time. They answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. And that is why we did this. We feared for our lives because of you. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. The Israelites come over the hill. They find the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites' response when they're called on the carpet is to say, we got nothing, man. We heard about you. And that's why we did this. Uh, we're just waiting for the verdict here. But you know what? They got an oath, didn't they? 
according to the name and the character and the reputation of who again? Yahweh, Israel's God. Nothing is going to happen to these people. The treaty of peace has to hold. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose, and that is what they are to this day. That was all of Joshua chapter 9. Now, I'm going to preach two mini-sermons, I promise, very many-ish, and they're each going to have their own clothes. But first I have to introduce you to Daryl. When I was at a terrible point in my life, and I had walked away from relationship with the Lord on purpose, the man who took the brunt of all of my bitterness and anxiety and anger at the church was a Baptist pastor, about yay tall, but full of the Holy Spirit, even though he didn't believe in that kind of thing, named Pastor Daryl Gabbard. And he was a saint of a man, and he loved me when I was pretty unlovable, and he walked me back to relationship. To this day, I grew up in kind of a Baptist-y upbringing, and because of him, there's still a little Baptist that lives in my heart, all right? And I have named him Daryl. So Daryl, the tiny Baptist that lives in my heart. <laughs> we get along, you know, really well, actually. And today is Daryl's day, man. Daryl gets to come out for the rest of the message because Baptists, they like to talk about things like Jesus and repentance and salvation. And they like to say things like, every head bowed and every eye closed. And they like to do things like go way over time and make the children's ministry upset. And we're going to do all three of those today. So hopefully I can be forgiven. But are you guys ready for a salvation message? Here we go. The Gibeonites teach us one major thing, but I'm breaking it up into two parts. Here's the first one. It is not too late. If you looked on paper, if you just had the facts... It is too late for the Gibeonites. This is a nation that could not get any worse. God had already said, your wickedness, your sinfulness, your nastiness, it is full. Are we waiting for it to get fuller? What are you waiting for? Overflowing? We have every reason to believe that the nasty list of things in Leviticus 18, that God is saying, this is what is ticking me off so bad. The kind of person that would do all that is these kind of people. These are those people. These are those people that need to be told, that is a sheep. You shouldn't be doing that with a sheep. It's weird. You should read Leviticus 18. It's kind of gross, right? But these people are kind of so twisted. Their culture is so warped that they are those kinds of people. They're bad. They can't get worse. God had said ahead of time, I am going to judge these people. It's going to happen. Abraham, listen to me, a little over 400 years from now, something terrible is going to happen and they are going to deserve it. This is not a surprise. It had been foreshadowed. And they've already crossed the Jordan. They've already defeated Jericho. They've already defeated Ai. The wrecking ball is in motion. The judgment is in process. This isn't something that's on the way. You know, this isn't Lord of the Rings where they're like, this is the calm before the storm. The storm is happening. The judgment is here. And worse than that, Everyone knows what's happening. When the Israelites cross over and they go to Jericho, Rahab says this to them. We've heard. They know. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We've heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites. You completely destroyed them. We heard of it. 
And our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. Why? This is the other thing that everybody knows in this country. Because the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. All these people know what's going on. This is not a guerrilla attack. It's not a surprise. The Gibeonites say the same thing. Going back to our key verses, why did you deceive us? Because we were clearly told. Is my clicker going to work? Let's go. Your servants were clearly told how the Lord told Moses, his servant, to give you the land. We know what's happening. So on paper, is it too late? Yeah, it's way too late. But the Gibeonites are not dumb. And they know that there's something they can bet on. There's a wager that they can place that just might save them, even though it looks like it's too late. And I want to tell you, it was not their ruse. We had these people who shamed themselves by covering themselves in a costume and bringing moldy bread to beg peace from Yeshua. These people are saying, look, we know that you guys have a special covenant with your God and we're not in it. We know that you guys are the people of Yahweh and we are strangers to your people. We know that we are technically far away, even though we're close. We know that we are about to get destroyed, but we are begging you for peace. And they had to know that three days later they were coming over the hill. The trick wouldn't save them then. The real thing they were betting on when they met Joshua, Yeshua, and said, here we are, we're your servants, do what seems good and right. They were betting on the grace of God. And it paid off. I want to tell you, it's the same for everyone in this room today. If we fast forward to Ephesians, Ephesians? Ephesians, there we go. We read this. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that would be all of us, I think. At that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope, because it was too late, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, Yeshua, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. An amazing thing has happened. It was too late, but Jesus. It was too late, but God's grace. Yeshua still has made a treaty of peace with everyone who will accept us. Accept it, excuse me. It is not too late. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed right now. Let's do this. Lord God, I just ask you right now to knock on hearts, Jesus. For the people in this room who have said, it is too late for me, maybe because of what they've been through, maybe because of what they've done, Lord God. Maybe, maybe even because they've lived a good, quote-unquote, Christian life their whole life, but they don't remember a time that they ever committed to you. They don't remember a time they ever bowed the knee. And they're saying, certainly not now. I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 76, I'm 80. Certainly now I can't pray the salvation prayer. But Lord God, I I just remember... In the Pilgrim's Progress, Lord, the two people who are on the path and they think they're good only to find out at the gate of the city that they never started at the cross. Lord God, it is not too late for that person. It is not too late for the criminal. It is not too late for the person who is deeply ashamed of the person they've always been and they know they're only getting what they deserve. So what? 
Lord, we are asking for peace, and you yourself are our peace. It is not too late. If you need that, if you needed that word, if you thought it's too late this morning, it is not. Raise your hand. Get those hands in the air. You need grace. You've been putting it off. You need it today. Is there anybody in this room? I thought it was too late. It is not too late. All right, heads up. We have to continue the sermon. If that is you and you didn't raise your hand, take care of that today. Amen. Daryl is so happy. Daryl is loving this. All right, we have one more point. If it's not too late, it's not too early either. You know, an amazing thing has transpired. We are in a new covenant, right? We don't go to Yeshua having to beg, steal, and borrow a treaty of peace. Because of the cross, God comes to us. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wants everybody to come to him. He made the way, and he goes and invites you into the way. He's taking 999 steps and goes to your door to help you make the last one. Give me a treaty of peace. I don't want you to fall under my wrath. I don't want you to be judged. That's the last thing I want. Look at the price I paid. I stand at the door and knock. And too often, our response is, yeah, yeah, I mean, right now? You want me to commit right? Things are good. I'm only 12. I'm only 25. I'm only 30. I'm 40. You know, things are rolling with my business. My relationships are good. I'll tell you what, Jesus. Maybe if I get in a terrible accident, you know, maybe if I have a debilitating disease, maybe if my relationships fall apart or if my stocks crash, if my bank account goes south, maybe if I get some sort of terrible addiction and I can't pull myself out, then I'll come to you. Then you knock again, okay? You come back then, and then I'll use you because that's what a, a, a testimony really is, right? First I have to hit bottom, and then you save me, and I say, oh, I was such a loser, and then Jesus. And that hasn't happened yet, so I don't know, maybe when I'm old and sick. Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. The Gibeonites did not do that. But they could have. They were in their prime. They are not who we think. The Gibeonites had a great defense. Flip the page in your Bible to Joshua 10, and we find out who the Gibeonites really were. We find out who these, these punks were that shamed themselves with a the ruse. Joshua 10:2. Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. It was greater than Ai. Back in the day, having a great city mattered. If you were an invading army and you went to a city that was like, man, those walls were thick and those walls were high and maybe it was built on a river, that was not worth your time. The city could avoid being taken over just by being too tough and too impractical to invade. That was a good defense. You could win before the battle ever started with a good defense. And Gibeon was one of those cities. So they had options. They could have holed up in their sweet city. They didn't just have a good defense, though. Gibeon had a good offense. Who were these sniveling weasels that put on old sandals and got moldy bread? Not sniveling weasels. Finish Joshua 10.2, and it says this. Not only was it a mighty city. There we go. Clicker. Gibeon was a great city. It was like one of the royal cities. It was greater than Ai. And all its men were warriors. Lots of battles in the Old Testament. Lots of fighting men. Only a select few are ever called valiant men. Right? David had a ton of people for him, but we know who the 30 were. We know who the three were. We know who his valiant men were. If you were a mighty man, 
it was a big deal. We have a whole city of mighty men. And, by the way, a sweet city. These are not people that had to surrender. When we think of the people that shame themselves to go to Yeshua and beg for peace, stop thinking of wimps and start thinking of these type of people. They did that. That seems incongruous. It doesn't seem to make sense. Why would these warriors, these mighty men, lower themselves to that? But they were like this. Not like this. The men of Gibeon certainly weren't like this. All its men were warriors. When we think of the people that humbled themselves before Yeshua, we need to think of people like this. All right? Tough guys. Tough enough to look good in a polo shirt like Carl Weathers. I mean, that is tough. All right? These people bowed before Yeshua and asked for peace. Gibeon also had great allies. Tough people in a tough city with a bunch of people that they could team up with. When all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country and the western foothills, all along the entire coast of the Mediterranean, six nations are listed there. They all gang up against a people who are, FYI, homeless. The Israelites don't even have a city. They have this bad habit. They cross the river. They've beaten two and destroyed them. They're camping in a field. And you have six nations teaming up. And Gibeon looks at that and says, we're mighty men. We've got a great city and we have six nations on our side fighting homeless people. With all this going for them, why would they trust in grace instead of victory? And that's because, yeah, six nations get it wrong. And one nation get it right. Your servants were clearly told that we are not fighting people. Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you guys this land and to drive us out. Six nations get it wrong. One nation gets it right. That we might have a great defense. We might be mighty men. We might have great allies. But that is useless against Yahweh. Because he's made a promise. And the fact that people in their prime like this humbled themselves to go beg for peace from Yeshua makes an absolute mockery of this. And I am fine with that because this makes a mockery of this. We cannot forget what price Jesus paid and then comes to knock on the door of our heart and says, Is it too early? Is it too early? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will, somebody say will, will have mercy on them. Let them turn to our God for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55. The author of Hebrews just says it this way. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today. It's a today, right? It's a today. Excellent. So it's not too early. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed one more time. God, we repent for thinking we don't need you right now. God, we repent for ever thinking, maybe later. Lord, thank you for that cross thing and all, but can I get a rain check? Lord, today is a day called today, and you are near right now. If you need that right now, whether it's salvation for the first time or just you desperately need grace, I want you to raise your hand right now. Don't put it off. One, two, excellent. It is not too early. Take it, get it. Right now is the time.
All right, heads up. Have to respect time. If that's you and you didn't do that, guess what? Service isn't over. It's going to be going on for another 35, 40 minutes. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Take care of it. We're not that Baptist today. (laughs) Not quite. God bless you, Daryl. One last point. It's not too late. It's not too early. This is kind of an afterthought, but it's important. Why should I get grace at all? Because you're going to need it sooner than you think. If the Gibeonites hadn't begged Yeshua for a treaty of peace, three days later they would have wished they would have when the Israelites came over that hill and found their cities. And guess what? That would not have been the time when he was near to seek him. That would not have been a day called today. That really would have been too late. And they would desperately have needed grace that they would not have found. But they ended up needing grace even after they got the treaty of peace because something happened they didn't quite expect. Gibeon was so mighty that when the king of Jerusalem heard that the Gibeonites had teamed up with the Israelites, he freaked out a little bit. This was like a 10 out of 10 on the oh crap meter. So it says that when Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, devoted it to destruction, and doing Ai and its king what he'd done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and that they were among them, he feared greatly. Why? Because Gibeon was a great city and all its men were warriors. Gibeon, they were so tough, we just cannot have people like that teaming up with people like this. Gibeon was a city full of bad dudes. So the king of Jerusalem talks to all these nations that are allied against Israel and says, we have something to do first, guys. We got to strike hard and fast and we've got to squash Gibeon. So they decide to do that. So all these nations go to Gibeon and they lay siege to it. It might be a mighty city, but can it stand up to all these kings? And the answer is no. Gibeon needs a miracle. So Gibeon does the only thing it can do, and they send a messenger to go about a day away to the camp at Israel. Israel's in Gilgal. They are not next door to Gibeon. So Israel gets this message. Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Let's pause there. I know it's on the screen, but just think about this. You're the Israelites. You've just been tricked by these people. These Leviticus 18 type people. You didn't really want them around anyway. And now you have all these countries laying siege to their city. I mean, that's kind of a win-win right? I mean, the Gibeonites are mighty. They've got a great city. They're probably going to take out a whole bunch of this giant army, but eventually this giant army is going to win and take care of your heavy work, really, and take care of Gibeon. So uh, maybe we just sit this one out. Wouldn't that solve the problem? Except they swore an oath by the Lord their God, according to the name and the character and the reputation of Yahweh. And when Yahweh gives you grace, he's not just not against you. He is for you. Joshua musters the entire army and all the valiant men, it says there, his own tough dudes, they march all night to get there in time. And then they kick butt all day. And when we read in the Old Testament the miraculous story of Joshua saying, let the sun not set until we're done with this battle, so that we can keep kicking butt until the battle is won. God does that for him for the Gibeonites, for these people who were brand new, 
These people that, quote-unquote, don't even belong here, except they do. They are in, 100% covered by the grace of God, and God comes through for them. So I could pick my clothes here. We've got three good points, and I don't want us to miss any of them. You're never too far gone for grace. If you didn't take care of that, take care of it today. It is laughable foolishness. Actually stupid is what Daryl would say. To allow your own strength and security, quote-unquote, to keep you from seeking grace. If you've never done that, it's not too early. Today is called today. And also, grace both saves you and assists you. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a make-friends-with-God-almighty card. It's a be-his-child card. He is for you, not just not against you. But if the Gibeonites were here, if we had a time machine, I think that they would say one thing. I think that it would be all be distilled down to one big punch, and that would be this. Do not hesitate. Get grace now. No matter who you are or what situation you're in, today is the day of your salvation. And if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You will need his grace sooner than you think.